welcome to the Product Quest podcast. Thanks for joining us on our journey to better understand innovation and product strategy. My name is Scott Burleson, and joining me as always, my co-hosts, Jan Vermouth and Jonathan Edwards. Today, we welcome a most special guest, Dr. Lance Bedencourt. Without question, Lance is on the Mount Rushmore of Jobs to be Done contributors. He's currently a professor of marketing at Texas Christian University, Go Horn Frogs. He's the author of the book, Service Innovation, and otherwise highly published, including an M in MIT Sloan Management Review, Harvard Business Review. Most notably with Tony Olick, he authored the Customer-Centered Innovation Map in HBR. One of the most important jobs we've done publications and has the distinction of the resource that I've recommended more than any other. Lance is also an appreciator of ice cream, has been known to do crazy things like hike down and back the Grand Canyon, and is an all-around great dude who I'm proud to call my friend. Lance, welcome to the Product Quest podcast. Thank you very much, Scott. Uh, thank you very much for those positive comments. I can't help but smile at the uh, tidbits of truth and tidbits <laughs> of maybe exaggeration. Who knows? <laughs> Who knows where one uh, ends? That's right. One or the other. The ice cream, that part's true. <laughs> oh, I can verify that. I <laughs> Let's start with what you're doing now. Tell us about some of the courses you're teaching at TCU. Uh, so since I've been at TCU, I have taught a variety of classes, um, and that's changed over time. I teach uh, an executive MBA class. That class is large. Uh-oh. Oh, I think we lost it. Actually, <laughs> overall marketing management, uh, I have to put a lofty title on it, but it's really an overview of, now when they listen to this, they're like, oh no, that's now what I realize. But uh, it's uh, an overview of, of marketing overall, customer value, delivery, et cetera. And uh, at the undergraduate level, I teach some classes like that as well. Uh, at the undergraduate level, I'm also teaching uh, a marketing strategy class, sort of a capstone, very much decision-making focused class. I teach a service excellence class, one of my passion areas. Uh, and I am, I'm now teaching international marketing class that has a study abroad component. And then finally, I'm now teaching at the undergraduate level, a leadership class on interpersonal influence, which uh, is not inside my marketing domain, but obviously ties back to the work we do as professionals. And between the students, the content, uh, just my ability to be flexible in some of the things I'm doing in terms of how I approach the class, it's just been really, really a lot of fun. And I think I'm making a I think I'm making a good impact, which has been pretty cool as well. Yeah, I have no doubt about that. Well, you're a Texan now. And uh, so <laughs> well, you, you know, know, only take that so far, right? <laughs> uh, no boots, <laughs> no belt buckle. I still drive a Mini Cooper parked next to giant trucks. Uh, I do love Texas, actually, but, you know, only so far. <clears throat> I'm very disappointed. I was sure you had the hat and the boots. I was, <laughs> I would have bet I on do it. not. <laughs> you haven't ridden a horse either, I don't guess. Uh, uh, not since I've been here and definitely not to work. <laughs> All right. I'll check in with you on the hat and boots later. Cause I've, I could just totally picture you in the store, trying it all on. And what? Oh, I've tried one on. Yeah. But that's it. Yeah. All right. So you were at Indiana years ago. Mm -hmm. Then afterwards, you had quite a long consulting career, but then you went, ended up back in academia. What, what drew you back in? You know, when I was consulting, uh, I, I loved my consulting time. I loved my time with Stratagen and the work that I did on my own as well. I value the opportunity to, to learn from clients, to help clients along the way. But even when I was in consulting, I continued to do some writing, which is where the, you know, the first HBR came about. I continued to do some writing. Uh, my book was published while I was with Stratagen as well. And then one of the things I think I cherished most when I was doing the consulting time period was also the executive education that I got to do. And so part of that was just a realization that the things that I loved most were the things that really aligned with academia. So that was part of it. And then I'd say the other part of it is I really value people and the opportunity to make a difference in people's lives and academia, not that I can't get that from consulting, but really you're there more project focused, task focused within academia and the role I have, especially with my undergraduate students, it really is an opportunity at a pivotal time in their lives to 
influence them by what you say, but also by being a role model, by connecting with relationships and, and things like that. And since I've been back, that that really has been true. So what trends do you see with your students as far as what they want to do professionally? Are they, they want to be YouTube stars or crypto traders? What's going on with the kids these days? I, you know, my exposure, of course, is mostly from the marketing standpoint. I, you know, I see the trends, you know, obviously we've got a, a ton of people that we place in investment banking from our finance majors. Supply chain, of course, is all the rage right now worldwide. Uh, I don't know that there's a particular trend in that area, but certainly you see a lot of that as well. Uh, within marketing specifically, uh, obviously digital is all the rage. Now, that's not a new thing. That's the last decade of trend there, but it's certainly trending that much more so. And probably it's probably more common than ever to work on the agency side versus within the corporate side. And I think part of that's just the shifting trend within how companies do their work and how much of it they outsource, if you will, to agencies. Uh, certainly see that as well. And then you do see marketing analytics. I don't know that my marketing students often have a great appreciation for that or a passion for it, but we even at, at TCU have recently started up a master's in analytics, mm -hmm. uh, which has a strong marketing focus, though not exclusively marketing focus. And so that is, is coming along as well. And then at the undergraduate level as well, we've, we at, at TCU, and this is across the board with lots of universities, but at TCU, we now have a very strong sales program, uh, a handful of classes, but very powerful, transformative of students, and really just emphasizing to them that no matter what position you go in at some level, you're going to be selling, selling your ideas, selling yourself, and, and sometimes selling accounts. And, and so we're seeing a push there too. Again, I don't know that it's so much that the students have driven it. The market has driven it. We've responded. We've got some excellence there. And students are certainly responding to that to, uh, to get some really very good jobs in that domain. That makes so much sense. I mean, selling is one of those things, just like you said, it's almost a life skill, like personal mm -hmm. finance or nutrition. It's like, you, you, I mean, whether it's like your own ideas, even if you're not like a salesperson, you know, peddling your wares, if you will, we all have, we all have to promote ourselves or our ideas or something. Well, and that's yeah. where the, the class I mentioned before on the leadership class that I'm teaching, that class, you know, leadership has at different levels. The leadership class that I'm teaching is about interpersonal influence. And so it's everything from asking good questions to listening well, to receiving feedback well, to giving feedback well. I introduce influence concepts and persuasion concepts in that class. So again, it's that type, uh, it's that type of class that it doesn't matter what specific domain you go into, I'm hoping that I'm teaching life lessons, professional lessons, and honestly, personal lessons to the student who eventually maybe is married and has children and just friendships. And some of the stuff I'm teaching, I, I absolutely try to let them know how relevant it is both to the professional and personal sides of life. So when you're doing that, like in that leadership class, to what degree does your own jobs to be done view of the world enter into it, if, if at all? So basically, every class I teach, you asked about classes I teach earlier, every class I teach, except for one, has some element of jobs to be done in it. Sometimes overlapping, always overlapping to some degree, but often different in terms of my emphasis. The one class where I don't have it is international marketing. And it's not that it wouldn't be relevant there. It's just not as core to the focus of the class. And honestly, I only have so many class sessions with that class. And so it doesn't make as much sense. And it's nothing distinctly international about it. But when it comes to my EMBA marketing management class, when it comes to other MBA classes I've taught in marketing management, when it comes to my undergraduate classes in marketing strategy, I'm always introducing a day, maybe more on jobs to be done trying to, if nothing else, maybe get a little bit into method, but more often than not, trying to emphasize to them a philosophy of thinking about customer needs, customer value, the market, market structure, yeah. competition, and so on. And so I had you know, messaged you separately in, in one of your LinkedIn comments about uh, marketing, uh, marketing malpractice, uh, Am I getting, I'm suddenly, I'm like, like I'm getting it right. I think so. Uh, the, you know, Clay Christensen and colleagues, HBR favorite, article. Favorite milkshake story. 
Yeah, yeah, with the milkshake story and other things. And so that one is still my go-to for those classes because again, my goal is to introduce you to that idea and in particular, the impact it has on marketing. When it comes to my service excellence class, I also introduce jobs to be done. And I've got a few articles that I've written in Business Horizons in particular. And also one I think I had in Marketing Management on shaping a service innovation strategy where it's more focused on on service innovation. So a little bit more tailored examples, tailored applications. And so I definitely spend time in that. And I also ask them for their project work that they do in that class where they have to come up with a new service. I also ask them to do uh, jobs-based interviews on jobs, on outcomes and things like that for that class. And then finally, the leadership class The leadership class, I'm not trying to teach them its linkages to marketing. I am more trying to, I think it's valuable as a leader to always have a needs-based view of your employees, of solutions in the workplace, rather than getting into the solutions and, and sort of bogging down at a conflict at the solution and feature level of whatever you're talking about. It could be workplace practices, policies, et cetera. I'm always trying to, in my own work, I do this and then trying to help them to elevate the conversation to the needs, which then I think gives us a better basis for potential legitimate discussion as well as agreement. And so that emphasis in that class is more about what are needs, just what are needs? Let's just talk about needs versus solutions, not even getting into all the how you would do an ideation or anything like that, but just what are needs versus solutions, why it's important to make that distinction Uh, what are the types of needs? What does a good need look like? And how would you ask questions to get at? And we might do a little, you know, time interviewing each other on some particular topic. And, and then I've, what I found is since this is my first time teaching and I couldn't have answered this two months ago, but now as I'm getting into it, I am finding myself occasionally referencing back in some example in class, like, ah, Hey, so here's another time where that jobs-based thinking we talked about is so important because you see what the, what the author of this article is talking about here, they're talking about a solution and how important it is to elevate the conversation. So making those linkages back as well. Can I just just jump in? I just, I, well, I think I just love hearing that that is also in in academia and all those courses more and more that jobs we don't actually gets, gets a sale or or that people get in touch with it because I think it is one of those things that as you, as you explained, I mean, once you have it, once it's there, it connects with everything else. And I think this, hugely important distinction that you mentioned between solution and need i think if you once you have that it is it can influence so many different things like the way even the ways you work right even the ways how should i approach a certain piece of work in my own it influences everything around you and i think i'm so i'm just glad to hear that it kind of you're spreading this in the in the in the academia world as well so well it it definitely affects my personal work i mean i just i go into committee meetings and someone's talking about something and I, it's always my thing to say, let's step back, let's talk about what we're trying to accomplish here, how are we evaluating success uh, so that we can have a better conversation. I do know, I don't know to what extent jobs to be done thinking has spread in academia. I do know that with the variety of HBR articles that are out there in Sloan's and things like that, uh, that it does have an impact. I know that some of my own colleagues at TCU uh, rely on some of my articles and others, and they actually did that before I arrived at TCU. And so I know that there is that. I know that I've had other academics from other universities reach out here and there. I do see an occasional academic article where they will reference, you know, connected in something Mm -hmm. to uh, whether it be some of Tony Olwick's work or Clay Christensen's work and things like that. I don't know how well it's understood because as practitioners of jobs to be done thinking, you know that there's a difference between a very high surface level understanding, which again, I think is valuable in itself also, but there's a difference between that level of understanding and understanding what it really looks like in practice. Because I think on the surface, and I always found this in training that jobs to be done is very intuitive. In fact, sometimes I worry, not worry, but, but I I worry from a training standpoint, sometimes it seems too intuitive because I think sometimes people go like, oh yeah, I get it. Or, oh yeah, we already do that. And I often find that's not really the case. And when you dig down and you sort of peel back the layers of it, it's actually quite complicated at some level uh, to, to execute, to implement. And it's very sophisticated. And it certainly goes beyond 
what most people think of. And so I find that sometimes in what I see in academic writing, is, for example, there's an article that I actually reference in an academic article I wrote time bringing in jobs to be done very recently. And, and the, one of the articles we reference says, you know, jobs to be done is a tool for something or other. And, and, and I just, I, 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 I take an exception a little bit to the phrasing of it being a tool. And especially in the application, it was applied. It was like, okay, I think you're thinking about this in a very narrow sense. Whereas I tend to think of jobs to be done much more strategically. Yeah, I agree. I so agree. <laughs> Yeah, you reminded me of something that, that one of the things we're thinking about with jobs be done as a movement. When you talk about some some folks, it just seems to resonate with quickly or at a surface level. And they might they seem to grasp it, but you're not quite sure. But what's really interesting to me, Lance, is it seems like some folks, when they learn really learn about jobs be done, they just become drawn to it so strongly. It just changes, like, it's like their whole brain becomes rewired, but they get so excited and they go deep and deep and deep. And then other folks sort of see, oh, it's just, it's just really about benefits and just another word for a customer benefit. And then they, right. they kind of move on. And so, you know, this is, um, what do you think is the appeal to these crazy people like us that love it and become so enthusiastic about it? Um, or, or what makes it difficult to, for the idea to, to, um, to spread, if that makes sense? Well, I will say, I think that when I first got exposed to it, I don't think I appreciated all the layers of it. Uh, you know, I, so I, my first exposure to Jobsy Done, I, I should also say, was when I was at Indiana University, I was teaching an MBA class on uh, customer-oriented strategy, and one of the articles that I used among various HBR articles in that class, one of the articles I used was Tony Olwick's 2002 HBR article, Turn Customer Input into Innovation. And, it, you know, you need customer insights, you need insights into customer needs. <clears throat> it gives a lovely example of, of how to do that and the impact it made on, on, this, on a couple of companies. And so I incorporated a class and later on, I, I reached out to Tony and, and, you know, he had a position that he was trying to hire at that time. And so ended up working and joining Stratagen. I, I don't know when I came to a greater realization, but I don't think it was then. It wasn't at that point in time. I, it, I think it emerged on me over time as I became more and more immersed and, and saw it really is different from benefits. And some of it would, would have just been Tony's leading and training that we received and part of it then would have been as I implemented and seeing an action. Um, mm -hmm. I actually think, Scott, one of the critical distinctions, but also I think where maybe some people don't get it, to your example, is, oh, it's just another word for benefits. Right. And mm -hmm. I had an academic say that to me a handful of years ago, and it, it made me step back. And of course, by that point in time, I've been in this 15 years, and yet it still took me a moment to be like, okay, I need to step back and think about it. Well, one... And, and one of the critical distinctions I would make there is that a benefit, I think by definition, is a benefit of something. And so when you say benefit, you're still tying it to the solution. A benefit is some way that a solution helps you. And I do think that that does tie into getting a job done. I do think that, that, that when you look at an outcome, an a, a solution that's out there today, could provide the benefit to you of helping you better satisfy your outcome. And so I, I do think that there's a linkage there, but I also think that there are, no, not think, no, that there are outcomes on getting a job done for which there might not be any solution in the marketplace today. And so therefore, if I limit myself to benefits, I'm limiting myself in many ways to understanding what customers might value in terms of what already exists. That's a fundamental difference with jobs to be done thinking is focused on what success looks like from a customer perspective, regardless of what's out there today. And then that greater recognition, and I've just grown in appreciation for this over the last decade, especially a greater appreciation for the fact that our true satisfaction in getting a job done is often as much or more dependent on ourselves and our skill set, our motivation, our know-how, as it is in the solutions that we might hire from the marketplace. And of course, that I think that depends on the job. But if you take something like weight loss, for example, uh, the job of losing weight, 
that's highly, highly dependent on me, no matter how much skill you embed in your solutions that might help me, it's still so much dependent on me. And so I think that that depends. And so that's, again, that's not a benefit of the marketplace. Then it ties back to me, but, but I still tie back to my success in getting the job done. And so that perspective is very rich. Now, why do some people get it and others don't? I can't answer that, but I do think that quite often, Scott, it is people like you who have been practitioners and, and have struggled with how things are done internally in the organizations today. And then when they read it, they're embedded enough in what works and what doesn't work and what the gaps are that I think it does turn the light on. And they, they, they sense, they get it immediately sometimes that this actually is vastly different. And I'm sure they grow in their understanding as they apply it over time as well. You know, uh, with, um, with, uh, is it Jim Kalbach? Kalbach? Yeah. It, I, I may not be saying his last name right, but I was glancing through his book recently, uh, which probably came by reference of Scott also to look at it. And again, I, I, his light came on, right? And I, I appreciate seeing that as someone who really came from a design background. Same thing, though, embedded, not like you, Scott, as a product manager, but as a designer and thinking design thinking same thing, recognizing the how the light came on of how this really does fill a hole that's needed. And yet at the same time, I think sometimes if we think about jobs to be done as completely vastly different and not even complementary to what's out there, then that's also a mistake. And so I think sometimes the best way to adopt it is to say, let's take baby steps to incorporating it. Let's find some quick wins where we can incorporate it into our standard product management process or into our design thinking process because I do think that there's a whole lot of complementarity there. Wow. That was amazing. I, the one thing that really resonated with, with me that you said is I, is uh, I think your hypothesis about why it resonated with me is that I felt a lot of pain as a practitioner, as a product manager is right. I was, I was, uh, and so if I never felt that pain, well, literally, I felt that pain. So I was extremely dissatisfied, right? And so when I found this solution, I was I spent the effort to understand it. It had the it at least well, it was actually Tony's book. I mean, it was other things, but when I read Tony's book, uh, What Customers Want, I often call it the book. It, and interestingly, it was the I was reading through it, but it was the chapter on segmentation that for some reason the the biggest like I, I wrote down your words the, the light came on i think that's a great way mm -hmm. to think about it. the light came on because oh wait here's a group of people that have the same priorities now if i know what these priorities are now mm -hmm. i can build now i can do something um so i i i uh, i think that's exactly right and it reminds me of something else lance when um occasionally for some uh some poor professor thinks that i should teach a lecture for their class so i've done that a few times and um these poor students but but um the students especially undergraduates i can just see that they're just not it's like it's like talking to calculus to a child it's like they don't they they haven't felt the pain so they're like so basically i'm offering this solution this even though it's jobs be done as a solution and, and it's mm -hmm. not solving one of their jobs so it's like that's like the toughest audience for me to talk about this to are our undergraduates because in I and um, I think it's because they haven't felt the pain of a of innovation practitioner. So I th I've never put I've never put it together that way, but I think that I makes mean, for, for me it makes a lot of sense too. I mean I totally agree, and I think that's my experience also. I mean I I had a company a freelance as a freelance, and I felt the pain, you know, of uh, going through uh, some of the, the the motions and ups and downs of uh, of this company and. And I think it really made sense to me, you know, once I'd, I had been burnt a few times and I, and I can definitely, I, I'd never thought about that actually. I always thought it was a mindset thing, but I, I think that's definitely an, an important component. Well, and actually just even that comment there makes me think of uh, the PC Junior example. So this is in Tony's uh, book, uh, in the introduction to the book, I think when he's sort of setting the stage for, how uh, outcome-driven innovation came about and, and the focus on the job, but then specifically the focus on the outcomes and breaking down the process. And looking at that was he shares the story of how he was working on PC Junior and PC Junior is introduced to the marketplace. And it was like day one, Wall Street Journal comes out and the headline says PC Junior a flop. And Tony's revelation, which I've always appreciated was if they can know on day one 
that PC Jr. is a flop, how are they evaluating that? And if they can evaluate it that way on day one, then maybe we could evaluate it on day minus one. And if we can evaluate on day minus one before it's introduced, why we can't we evaluate that on day minus 365 or whatever it is and understand what success and value looks like. And so it's through that process and through his own pain in seeing that and seeing things not work in the marketplace and, and then coming back to question, why is that the case? And is there a way to understand this that goes back in time? And I got to say, I mean, Tony should get a lot, a lot, a lot of credit. And there is, you know, jobs thinking, I do think is highly anchored around what Tony has done or the terminology there. Uh, Clay certainly as well, uh, Clay Christensen as well. I think that sometimes a little too much credit is given to Clay without the recognition of Tony. But even if, even if the job side wording or whatever leans more one way or the other, I don't know. But the complexity and the real detail insights comes about in understanding needs on getting the job done and understanding how you measure success in getting the job done in a solution independent manner. And that is, I mean, it's revolutionary. It's a completely different way of thinking about it. Like I said, it's completely different from benefits, which could have been Tony's leaning. He could have just said, well, how do we better understand benefits beforehand? But he really went well beyond that. And by the time I joined Stratagen in 2003, I think it was, Tony's been in business by that point in time on his own a decade, um, but he had a, he wrote a prior book also where where a lot of things are already laid out and very similar to what is still in place today and 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 back in the day, he had this worked out not entirely but largely very early on. Yeah, I actually love his earlier books, uh, and it's it's a little bit different. It's not quite the maturity that ODI eventually became, but I find it very useful to go back to that era and understand his thinking at that time. And then some, something about that. I mean, I've got, I actually, I've got a few copies. It's out of print. I'm not, nobody's going to get them from me, but, um, <laughs> it's, but it's, it's helpful for me to see that evolution. I'm sorry, Jonathan, you were going to ask something. No, it's just uh, something I thought about. An observation is that the, the this kind of train of thought of saying you get burnt and then you get two jobs to be done in this way. Uh, what's quite interesting is I've heard quite a lot of people in the lean startup movement actually say, like having a very similar narrative of saying, well, I had a company, you know, and I got burnt and this and that. And then I, I got to lean startup, which was just a kind of comment. Well, and Scott, one of the things that you said that I very much resonate with is, again, jobs to be done thinking or this understanding of customer needs is itself a solution to getting the job done, which is why it resonated with you. And, and when I talk to my undergraduates, you were talking about the struggle there, it can be difficult. I, I think I do get through to them at some level, but is it fully appreciated? No, I'm sure not. Because again, if they've not experienced that, that pain to have that appreciation, but I actually try to just help them to understand upfront. And this is why I absolutely do it in my marketing classes, because the central focus for marketing should be about creating and delivering value to customers that helps your company to grow. If you really want to do that well, you've got to have an understanding of customer needs. And this is where I still find, I, I don't know that I've found any marketing textbooks that have incorporated jobs. You I think that's the next layer that's yeah. really, really needed. If you really want to spread this, is getting it into marketing textbooks because there's always a chapter on in strategy or, or, or what have you or customer behavior on customer decision-making. And often those chapters are two paragraphs at most on customer needs. And yeah. what will be said is something along the lines of a customer need is important. A customer need is a gap between a desired and actual state, which does hold for jobs to be done. And then not much more And some point in time in the chapter, Maslow's hierarchy. And yeah. for this central, 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 central concept to business and marketing, it's amazing how little is actually taught on it. So one of the things I tell my students is, is, I don't just teach this because I consulted on it. I teach it because I truly believe in it. And I, I believe this little insight to you is going to be a competitive 
advantage to you in your professional career to understand this and to have this perspective. And then I go into some examples, you know, to sort of share with them the importance of that and how we build on it. But it's amazing to me how deficient marketing textbooks are. And and honestly, I think you could say the same thing probably about going to a, a lot of textbooks focused on product innovation and product management. We've got this understanding that it's important, needs are important, but we don't really know what they are. So we say it, we say it in a very abstract manner. We present Maslow's hierarchy. And one of the examples I use in my class is I typically carry a stapler with me uh, when, when I do that class. And I just, I talk to him about, and I, I actually jokingly say, you know, and I, ref, I talk about Maslow's hierarchy and everything like that. And I say, so let's think about how Maslow's hierarchy helps me to innovate a better stapler or a new stapler, a new way of doing whatever the stapler is hired to do. So I said, well, there's, there's safety concerns, physiological needs, right? Hunger, thirst. I'm not really sure it helps with that. And then you've got, uh, you know, I forget the next level, but two levels up, mm-hmm. I think is belonging. I'm like, well, I guess I could have a really attractive stapler and people would love me more because I've got this really cool stapler. And I'm like, well, you know, probably not. At the highest level, it's, you know, self-esteem. I'm like, I, I got the coolest stapler there is. Now I feel like I've achieved my pinnacle of my life. And so I jokingly talk to them about how deficient that understanding mm-hmm. is. And then I go into a discussion with them about what is the purpose of a stapler? What does it help you to do? I continue that conversation with what other solutions are out there that help you to do the same thing as that. And one of the ones I conclude with, because of course, paperclip, et cetera, but one of the ones I conclude with is, what do you do if you don't have any of those options? And of course, the solution of dog earring the paper comes up and I'm like, ah, so we don't have to buy things from the marketplace to get a job done. So that opens up this broader horizon, strategic focus and why it's so important, how it gives you a better perspective on competition and things like that as well. And so that's one of the ways that I try to engage them. But the, the, the bigger picture message here though, is marketing is deficient in really understanding this. And that honestly will be the next revolution that will really, really, I think, help it to catch on. I, I think this is, I mean, this so resonates with me. I mean, on the, on the one hand, this is an experience I make also in certain types of companies, I think, where they still have a very, I think, skewed view of what marketing actually can do and what the power mm-hmm. of marketing is. And then they don't really get, it's just like making things beautiful, right? So once you go into the community, but, and then there are other companies who really saw what the, what the power is. But I mean, it's, it's, it's so interesting on the one hand, we are so used today, at least that technology, for example, we agree, everybody agrees technology is hyper complicated. And it's fine that we write pages and pages full of complex requirements for any technology that we're going to build. But then when it comes to needs, we believe that's a superficial, simple thing that can be just done in two or three sentences. But I mean, if anything, the human is such a comp- is 10 times more complex than any machine there is. I mean, right. So it, it, it's kind of weird also in a certain sense that we're not that ready to embrace the complexity of, of, what, of, of how humans actually design and work. Well, and I know that one of the potential topics to talk about as we move along is challenges with jobs to be done, outcome-driven innovation. And I think you've hit on a key one right there is that the complexity of jobs to be done is a potential barrier to its adoption. Uh, I think it's a barrier to acting on the results also, but I also don't think that jobs to be done is what comp- creates the complexity. Jobs to be done sort of captures the complexity that's out there better than other solutions. That yeah. said, it still is its own barrier because it is complex because the market is complex and, and therefore that can be very overwhelming to someone who is used to the simplicity. And, and honestly, it's actually an area where I believe that sometimes less is more, simpler is better because it would be better for someone to go with maybe not a perfect understanding of needs, but with a better understanding of needs that they actually take action upon is way better than a complete understanding of needs that they don't take action upon. Yeah, completely agree. Completely agree. Lance, I've said something very similar um, is when, when I'm helping a a client to, you know, to um, frame their project, what's the job and do a little job hierarchy and, and all the different job executors and um, 
you know, and all the different consumption jobs and you, you start charting it all out. And, and that, the feedback I've gotten is, um, well, you're making our markets real com complicated. And my response is very similar. You said, I'm not making it complicated. <laughs> we're describing it. We're, we're digitizing it. We're putting it on paper. It is as complicated as, as it is. Um, what you, what you choose to do with that is up to you. Yeah. But as a, as a consultant, I, that's, that's still, um, you, you make a good point about, well, maybe can it be simple enough, a good enough. And it's hard for, that's hard for, um, I sort of want it all charted out. Maybe that's just my personal neurotic nature, but it's, 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 all, but, um, anyway, I find that to be challenging, I guess, as a, as a consultant, but that, well, on yeah. that note, I, I occasionally uh, do just some advising with another yeah. uh, uh, ODI or, well, Jobs Be Done. I won't say ODI, Jobs Be Done consultant. And I just do some advising on framing projects and things like yeah. that. And so I was recently in a conversation with him and I'm, I'm brought in early and brought in a little bit later. And, and I had described to him at one point in time saying, I think you need to go simpler on this one based on the client's objectives and what they're looking to accomplish. Mm -hmm. I think you need to go simpler here. And the next meeting to follow up on that, it's full blown job map and everything out there. And I'm, and I'm thinking, I think this is too much for this client. I think it's too much for the situation. Yeah. And, he, and part of it was, oh, you know, I think it's a struggle not to do that. But the other struggle was, yeah, but I told them that this is all that we could do. And I'm like, then maybe you should stop telling them that that's all that you should do, because I think we have to be flexible in how we approach it because of the client situation and objectives and things like that. Yeah. 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 I actually would like to bounce off of that and, um, and ask, um, you know, what in your opinion would be the, the core things one should focus on? Like typically for freelancers, I, I always have them in mind. I, I know a lot of job to be done practitioners work with, within big companies that are established with, with product lines, et cetera. But, how this work for for free? I mean, how can how can they kind of reduce the 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 the, the amount of work and in, in in just preparing and not get stuck in in analysis paralysis and and where should they start? Thinking freelance like someone working within a company. You're not talking about necessarily a freelance. No, I'm I'm talking like really about freelancers, like freelancers or people who want to you know, launch a startup or some small company, like, because so, I think this is a valuable, you were talking about leadership previously, and, and that I thought was such a cool thing, because it's true, I think you can use this thinking as, uh, you know, um, to, 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 to interact with people. Um, but I think also for small businesses, it's a very important topic that can help them, but uh, it can be overwhelming. And right. so I was wondering, if, yeah. well, I think that the the history of great companies that have been created by the entrepreneurs were often, they, they had jobs in mind, they had outcomes in mind, they didn't have the terms, but they absolutely knew what the pain points were in accomplishing some goal with current solutions. So we would say those are unmet outcomes on getting a job done given today's solutions. They, they think that way. But, there's, but a lot of those great businesses certainly weren't started on the backs of a full-blown 150 outcome statement, prioritized market with a thousand customers, multi-segment XYZ. What they started with quite often is one really big pain point that they could come up with a better way of solving it or a handful of modest pain points that they then created a new solution for. And so, I mean, I'm, I, I was struck as we were saying that with thinking about, you know, Netflix relative to Blockbuster when it originally came out and thinking about, you know, not having late fees and not having to, you know, return, you know, forgetting to return, you know, having a penalty if you forget to return the video on time and things like that. And I think it's a handful of things that they said, you know, there's a whole different model here. And of course, if we can do it remote digital, it might also be less expensive for us operationally and we can pass that along. And so a handful of things really led that model. I think that's a common pattern. So to bring it back to the freelancer, <clears throat> I think that again, thinking about jobs we've done as a philosophy of what are customers trying to accomplish? What are the big pain points, the big areas where time is an issue, where there's 
maybe a huge inconvenience or a hassle? What are the, the key things in getting the job done where the current performance falls well short of what they would like it to be? I think if you can have those conversations with a focus on the job, with an understanding of what an outcome and a need looks like that isn't tied to the current way of doing things, and, and maybe all you have is a qualitative conversation with a couple of folks who are forward thinking, who you think represent, that's always a challenge, few customers are representing the market as a whole, um, but if you can get a handful of folks who represent viewpoints in the marketplace that at least might be common, then a few good conversations focused on a handful of key outcomes that are unmet and getting that job done might be all you need to revolutionize the market. So it's about the mind, it's, it, it is about a method of discussion, but it's really about the mindset to have the proper discussion. And it doesn't have to be extensive. It doesn't have to take place over months. It doesn't have to have thousands upon thousands of customers and therefore dollars to do it either. It's to know and really understand what the issues are for which a new and better solution might be valued. And then honestly, if you go into concept testing and you create your concepts and you roll that on your concept tester or prototypes, et cetera, you know, to build in design thinking issues and things like that, it's at that point in time, you could also begin to figure out how much will this will resonate with the market as a whole. And so maybe you didn't have that market prioritization up front, but you can get that when you get to the concept stage as well. And so you can get to market concept stage faster in that approach, but still be guided by some critical insights. I yeah. love that so much. Uh, the um, It's funny, you, you hit at something that's sort of a, a belief I have, but it's not supported by any evidence or or <laughs> whatsoever, <laughs> which is that um, that you can really do good work just with qualitative only, with 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 jobs you've done thinking, if you will. But I stop short of saying that a lot because it's it's you're highly dependent on the qualitative researcher as the instrument. Um, you're highly dependent on their ability to not have biases to really, and so I, it's almost like this evil thought that I have that I don't share with anybody, but to your point, Lance, there's been lots of, there's been lots, it's almost fun to think about it. There's been lots of products that believe it or not, were developed without 150 outcomes and prioritized in, in a right. segmentation and whatnot. Right. And I, and I, and yeah. Scott, I, I, so it's, I like the, it's my evil thought. I <laughs> yeah. generally keep it to myself as well. But I, I, and I, I, I don't advocate it. I don't say yeah. that's what should be done, should always be done. I, I do think it depends on the context. Of course, a lot of clients would like to say qualitative only because that's cheaper and faster. And I'm not going to, that's not a good reason for doing qualitative only, in my opinion. I think it has to fit the situation. So for example, I don't know that this would always hold, but I think that when you are creating something your goal is not to improve something currently that maybe your company offers, but maybe you want to come up with something that you know is going to be more of, let's say, an end-to-end -end solution that no one has today. Uh, and you've already got that general vision, that you, but you want to figure out what, the, what you should do within it. I think that you can go and say, look, I just want to understand what success looks like at every point along the way. And I'm going to use sort of the job map as a viewpoint and the, the outcomes. And, and what I at least hear as passion points as I'm talking to people along the way to craft out what that end-to-end -end solution is. And again, that doesn't mean you necessarily roll it out to the market immediately either and say, well, let's put a million dollars of investment in this mm -hmm. and immediately roll it out without any further testing. That's not your, you know, doing the needs is not your only point at which you can test your ideas and, and the value of them in the marketplace. And so again, I don't think it's, maybe it's not even often a good idea. I, don't, I certainly don't think it's always a good idea to do qualitative only. I do think that it can be at some times. And I especially think in that freelancer example, I think that again, what's the option? And here's the other question. What's the option? I can do that or I can do nothing because I'm not willing to commit to the whole deal. Well, I'd rather you do the something then. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally agree. Let's talk about one of my favorite things, the customer-centered innovation map published in 2008, I believe. The um, well, let's. I mean, it created the job map. It's then you have you have practice. You have teachers teaching how to craft the job map. You see it all over the place, and I'm always wondering, well, have they even had a conversation with you about it? <laughs> so, I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit. How did the job map come to be in that article? Um, yeah. So, first of all, no, they don't reach out to me. <laughs> so, <laughs> I honestly, 
No one ever. Uh, I, some people, I might get the occasional LinkedIn, thank you for your book or thank you for whatever. I've appreciated that. I've enjoyed that, that type of, but no, not in the sense of I'm training on it. I'm wondering about it. I've got questions or anything like that. So it is what it is. That said, I don't care about that either. Uh, I, I, I love those comments that you just made about it and having an impact. I love your comments early on, of course, about it having an impact and seeing it. I, I was, I'm serving as a judge uh, right now on the uh, Jobs to be Done Summit for Europe, uh, for the 2022 year run right now coming up. And um, I'm serving as a judge on some of those things too. And and some of the, the things that they're presenting and it shows you know the work that was done and there's the job map, there's the, the standard job map and then there's specific job map. And I must admit, I, I, it's kind of cool to see that <laughs> in place like that. And I, 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 I don't write first and foremost for ego, but come on. I mean, it's nice. Some level, sure. right? I mean, you sure. know, it, it's nice. And I, but I do write to have an impact. And so to have that be seen like that and have that impact and others picking up for training and whatever is cool. And I honestly don't care. Um, I'm, I, I, I'm just, I'm not looking to make money off of, the things I've done. I mean, it's nice. Money's fine. It's just not my main priority. I love sharing the knowledge. So how did that one come about? Well, first of all, um, I'll share with you what's my idea versus what wasn't my idea, right? So I was already working with Stratagen. We were already doing, uh, we were already organizing outcomes into a map. It was not called a job map at that time, I think it was called a value map or a value canvas. No, not a value canvas. That's, I think it was called a value map. And so we were already doing it, but largely, well, maybe not even largely, but, but certainly largely we were doing that. We were just doing interviews to get needs, outcomes on a job to be done. So we had a job in mind. And then we asked questions about things like inconveniences time delays, variance, you know, undesirable variance, and so on to get outcomes. But we weren't doing it by any step in the job. And so, but then at the end, we do these interviews and then we, we would organize these for the client into steps. So I didn't create that process. Uh, my contribution was because I was doing analysis for not only my own projects, but also the the projects of my colleagues within Stratagen, I saw a lot of projects. And I think one of my strengths, uh, plenty of weaknesses I can talk to you about, hopefully we won't get into those, but one of my strengths, strengths in business, I've found over to patterns. And I just saw the pattern there across a lot of different projects that I saw, I saw the different words, but there's a planning stage here, whether it's weight loss or, you know, conducting a, a surgery. I saw that there's, there's a phase in there about gathering. Sometimes it's gathering information. Sometimes it's accessing something. So access versus gather or locate. Sometimes it is about gathering parts and materials to be able to complete some physical job. And so I saw the pattern and tried to abstract that pattern to a level that was both captured the variance, but also ideally specific enough to be a good guide. And so it was after that point in time then that Stratagen also began to say, well, if we can recognize the pattern or, or pre-plan the pattern ahead of time, we can do our first set of interviews to understand the job map and then use that to become more efficient and effective in the interviews. And so that's where it came about. I will say though, just like jobs be done is a tool that is both useful, but needs to be flexible depending on the situation, the market context, the client objectives. I think the same thing about the job map and, and the universal job map. It, I think it's, I think it can be very helpful. I don't know that it's always best to even have a job map though, honestly, because, for example, sometimes you, you really benefit from getting the full scope perspective on things. And I think that other times the goal really is to understand maybe just a set of outcomes that tie back to some potential solution you're already thinking about. And you go, well, we should never have the solution in mind. Well, whatever. Sometimes clients do. 
And if that's the case, then I might want to capture my outcomes that more tied to that because it's more efficient. I think there's other times where due to budget or otherwise for other considerations, maybe we're not going to do quant where I really don't want to get a bunch of very small things at every step along the way. I really do want to get just the main pain points. And I'm going to ask my qualitative questions differently that way. And I may not want to go into all the details of the job map because it's actually going to overwhelm me. And I'm not going to be able to determine as well what the priorities are only from qualitative. Now, again, I'm not saying you should only do qualitative, but if you were to do that, doing a full job map actually is more problematic potentially than helpful in that case. If you're coming up with an end-to-end solution though, or you need to understand priorities at every stage along the way because your, your solution hits one part of the job, but you need to know where it might hit others or benefit others, then you need the job map. You should have the job map. The job map should guide you. So I love it. I'm happy with it, but it's also a hammer. And that hammer could be misapplied. Yeah, but I think it's so nice that you're that you're, that you're really saying this. I mean, it's I, I think what is extremely helpful is you need to have to kind of this universal ideal way of how it looks like and then deviate from it, which is something completely different than just having no structure at all, no, not knowing what to do. But but I, I love how you're kind of saying this. It, it's kind of context dependent. It depends itself on what you also want the job map to do. I mean, it what, what should it help you get done, as it were? And then you might you might have to tweak the tool a little bit. Absolutely. Lance, I've, I've found it helpful working with clients in scoping, in framing, because um, you know, you chart all these steps and, it's, you know, with the conversation, it's like, you know what, we're not actually interested in these steps or interested in these, but, but, but it's a, like, to go back to your stapler, we get, we're working for the Acme stapler company. A lot of times they think the job is to buy a stapler, which we, we could legitimately study that, but that's a different, that's a different project than, uh, you know, hold paper together or whatever it does. And so I find that it's just useful just to have that conversation to get it out on the table. Well, and, and okay. And so actually the stapler is a great example of one where job, the job map would be overkill. So if you're, when you're talking about something like losing weight, it's, it's very complex actually. Yeah. And I, there really are elements and struggles at a planning phase and a gathering and decision-making along the way and monitoring and maintaining and staying on track and adapting over time. And so, I mean, I can envision this, this entire thing and the customer is in this case, a job executor. They really are part of getting the job done. It's not something else doing it for them or what have you. So I can envision this. There are other times when, you know, okay, stapler, right? Uh, attach two pieces of, or attach pieces, not two, but attach pieces of paper together, hold them together, right? K- keep them together. Well, plan, I mean, bring them together, uh, locate. I need to get the papers and bring them together and align them and, you know, you know, prepare, confirm. I mean, it's like, okay, no, no, I just really need to focus on what are the big struggles in attaching today. And, and, you know, and you could come up with things that might hit those, but it might be like one outcome about, you know, when I attach them that I, I it, that the two papers or five papers or whatever it is that one of them's not aligned and I need to make an adjustment. And so there's some relevance there, but let's be real here. That would be like crazy overkill in that case. There's other times also where another example came to my mind. So I, I, you know, I did a project with a client many years ago. Uh, and their product was snack foods, uh, drinks, things like that also, but, but snack foods, healthy snack foods. And right, we hire foods for all the nutrients, et cetera. And so, and you can enhance these. And when you enhance them, they help you get various jobs to be done in terms of uh, everything from potentially reducing the risk of heart disease to, uh, you know, preventing migraines, you know, alleviating hangovers, right? All these different options. And that was a study where we did, you know, very much a jobs focus, not even getting into even necessarily outcomes on the jobs and certainly not by job map, And in the end of the day, you say, well, okay, so you prioritize these jobs, like reduce the risk of heart disease. Like, is there a job map related to that? Where if if some people are, first of all, only if the person's really actively involved in helping to get the job done, we might have that goal, but I then rely on my doctor to do it. There's still not a job map in that case. I've got to actively be involved at some (laughs) level of, of planning, et cetera. 
But even if that's the case, and I've got involved customers who are part of getting the job done for reducing, reducing the risk of heart disease, my client makes snack foods. It's worthless for me to go into planning and locating and monitoring and all these other phases. My client is never, they, they don't have any desire whatsoever to go into a planning tool or anything like that. And maybe a little planning of which foods align, but now we're really talking consumption chain at that point in time. Uh, so anyhow, it, the point being is I think it's a great thing, but it does not fit all situations. I think it's, uh, I, I, um, it's an irony on top of irony, ironies in that as jobs to be done practitioners, we really love our solution and we really want to use it and we want to beat everybody over the head with it. And regardless of what they want, what, regardless of what they want to accomplish, I am guilty of it. I am guilty. I feel like this, this is confession time. It's a good reminder for me. I always have to think about it. Wait, this is, this is actually, I should actually think about what they want to accomplish. <laughs> hey, whoa, whoa, whoa. Don't stretch too far. <laughs> All right, we're getting close to the end of their time here, but what? But I want to. So, so, Scott, I'll tell you if you guys want to continue, I'm having a fun time. If you want to continue and break this apart for what you guys ultimately share, part one, part two, I'd be thrilled. So, that's fine with me. I'm having a great time. I, I'm oh, good to get awesome. going. Jan and Jonathan, are you guys good? Yeah, I, 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 I would love, love to. That. I am. I, I just have a, have a conflict of, of, of something else, but I, I, I mean, I can go for another maybe 10 minutes or so, but then I got to run. But I would love to, <laughs> I, I was calculating that you had to a hard stop at, at the hour, but I would love to go for another hour or so. So, uh, hey, I don't know. Again, less grading time for me, eh, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I think hey, let's keep going. And it's, at some point, I'm just might going to disappear. So, okay. So, we will have a part two at some point also. Yeah, go ahead, John. Uh, yeah, so as we have little time, what I, I, I had actually a question I prepared uh, around this topic, uh, but I just want to make sure that we don't go off track too much. So okay. I'll just ask the question, and Scott, you tell me if you think we should go forward. Is that all right? Go ahead, Jonathan. You're good. And, yeah. and I'll try to so, play to my great strengths of, of not elaborating too much, because, of course, you know that's one of my great strengths. <laughs> Well, I think, you know, if you can, if we can make it short, that's great. So, um, yeah, I mean, service designers, they, they talk a lot about customer journey maps. And if you look around about, you know, uh, doing this and, and I just wanted to know, in your opinion, what, what, I mean, you've, you've talked about, obviously, uh, service innovation in your book. Um, in detail, and I see many parallels between the customer journey map and the um, the job map, um, and also maybe some differences. I wonder if you could maybe say a few words about that. All right, so I'm going to try to keep this brief. This is a challenging one. Yeah, that's why I was, that's why I wanted to ask Scott beforehand if we right. don't. Go no, no, that that's on me. I need to be brief, and I'll try to be brief. Okay, so I actually have an article that is already out on the internet. It will, it's, so it's accessible already. It will be forthcoming in print. I don't know when, sometime later this year, perhaps. Uh, it's an academic paper and it's uh, in the Journal of Service Research and it's called, it's called Consumer Job Journeys. And the purpose of that article is to introduce the consumer job journey, which ties back to the job map, right? So it's just, titling rise, but it's the consumer job journey, introducing that and then making it very clear for academics in particular of how and why a job journey is different from a customer journey that we typically do in services for customer journey maps or with products, why it's different and why the consumer job journey focus is ultimately a more valuable focus, especially if you're thinking about innovation, if you're thinking about strategic partnerships, et cetera, because it's, it goes all back to job focus versus solution focus. A customer journey as almost always practiced, at least as I've seen it in services and otherwise is more often than not, it's a purchase journey. Purchase journey is really narrowly focused on consumption. Helpful. I'm not going to say it's not helpful. 
it's hugely helpful to know about your customer's purchase journey and where they struggle along the way and things like that. Beyond that, people would say, oh, no, our customer journey is not just only purchase. It's all of the different touch points that the customer has with us. And so it might even be their interactions with our ads and finding information about us when they're on our website, um, when they're getting, you know, installation help and support and things along the way. But it is, again, almost always pretty much exclusively, academically at least, and I think in practitioners as well, defined around existing touch points. Once you put it into touch points, it's about what exists today. It's a solution focus. It's a narrow focus. It's a good focus, but it's a narrow focus, certainly in comparison to the job map and the journey the customer takes to get a job done. So to, to be fair, um, I, I'm not an expert on customer journey maps, but what I have heard quite often is that you shouldn't start with the touch point. So it's a mistake that a lot of people would make uh, building customer job uh, journey uh, maps, getting confused, um, that they would start with the touch points. And actually, you should start with customer activities. And um, But... Because also, I think people, and you touch upon this in the book also, you talk about service blueprints. And I think um, both these concepts, customer journey maps and service blueprints are, are quite similar. And I actually, you explain nicely in the book that the difference between service blueprints and um, um, a job map. Um, so I don't know if you, you recall, I guess the book was a long time ago, but uh, would, do you want to say anything about that? Well, so uh, I will. Let me, let me address the activities part first of customer journey mapping. We'd have to look at an individual job or journey map ultimately to say, is it job focused or not? So I'm not going to say that there are no customer journey maps that can't be jobs focused. I think that depends on what the person's focus was. If they are saying, here's the journey the customer takes to accomplish some goal that is independent, doesn't say what the product is to get there. And they have the activities the customer has to get done along the way and what the purpose of those activities is, then it certainly might be a job journey, might be. Uh, But if the activities themselves are activities associated with somehow getting value from an an existing solution in the marketplace, it is still narrowly focused. Also, activities themselves are solutions. Our activities as individuals are solutions. So if I say visit a website, that's an activity or, or do whatever, uh, assemble something together. That is sort laundry. There you go. Sort laundry. Sort laundry is an activity. It's not a step in a job because sort laundry is itself tied to the purpose and, and trying to avoid certain negative outcomes on the process of cleaning my laundry. And so again, still have to be very cautious just because it's activities focused. It still might be consumption focused and still might be narrowly focused. But again, case-by-case basis uh, as to whether it really fits the job or not. On the blueprinting side of things, a service, love service blueprinting. Uh, My uh, colleagues at Arizona State University, which is where I got my PhD, are central to training practitioners and executives on service blueprinting and spreading a really, really good message about the value of service blueprinting. Service blueprinting, however, is focused primarily on design. It is certainly focused on either either my current service that already exists or once I've got an idea for a service. And so in one case or the other, I'm either saying blueprint what actually exists or blueprint what the ideal is, but it is still oriented around a service. It assumes a certain solution that's in place and therefore it is not at the job level. I think they're complementary jobs to figure out what the needs are that this new service or an improved service might better satisfy because it's still about the needs. And then when we get into the blueprinting to design a new way of doing things, a better way of doing things that better satisfies those needs. Yeah. Can I just, I, I, I have, oh, sorry, go on. Sorry, no, go ahead. Go ahead, Jan. Well, I just have to jump in because there's, I mean, there's one sentence that uh, you wrote in the customer centered innovation map that is, I think, crucial to this distinction that you made where you said um, between the kind of consumer uh, or the customer journey, as it were, and what, what a job map is. And I 100% agree from what I've seen in my, my experience and my practices, they are, usually they are solution-oriented very much, and they end up being a, a big thing with 
a lot of touch points on it and nobody knows what to do with it. But that's a different, different story. But the sentence that so stuck with me, and I think it's, it's applicable to, to, to what we're talking about here, is where you said a job map, I think the sentence is, it, it doesn't map what a customer does, but what the customer is trying to achieve, what, what the customer is trying to get done. And I think that is, it, it's such a fundamental distinction of, of it, it's very subtle, I think, in the, in, the, in, in the text itself, but I think that is the key distinction here. So it, we're not mapping what they're actually doing because I mean, imagine doing that. If you would really do this, you, you get thousands of different maps in the end because each customer journey, let's be real, it, it looks completely different. A job map does not. A job map is always the same. That's a fundamental difference. You're 100% right. And I also agree that it's subtle, but so critical. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I really love, just I just wanted to highlight something you said that I really liked when you said activities are solutions. I, I think there's that's something very deep. And we don't have much time, so I'll let the audience think about it. But I, I think that's a very, a very um, fundamental and idea that I for sure have been thinking about quite a, quite a bit. Yeah. Well, think maybe hopefully you've sold Lance enough. We might be able to trick him into a, a session two, uh, maybe at some point in, in 2022. Because I, I know there's a lot more, a lot more to talk about. But maybe we'll sort of pull it to a close uh, for today. Yeah. Lance, I've got one final question for you. You know how Google has a, like a little unique message at the top, they'll change it every now and then. If you could, let, if Google would let you put anything in that space, like so it would be broadcast to the whole world for a day, what would you, what would you put in there? Oh, wow. Uh, uh, what, what's coming to mind for me is, you know, we are in, it, it's a, it's a difficult, time in our country and our world i think right now pandemic and and things like that but i but before the pandemic but then with the pandemic you've got just divisiveness hasn't gone down it's grown and uh, one of the things i share in my syllabus with my students in part of my bio is uh, i think it's first corinthians 14 1 and it says let love be your highest goal let love be your highest goal. It's what I try to let guide me in the actions, decisions I make. And I ultimately think that it's the, the critical thing that we need as people, not United States yeah. people, right? The world, let love be your highest goal. Wow. I don't think we'll ever get a better answer than that. Yeah. That's fantastic. All right. Well, thanks, Lance, for a, fan, a great conversation. We're going to hold him to, he didn't, he didn't commit, but we're going to make out like he committed to a session. Yeah. Two later. I'll bribe you with ice cream. <laughs> and that will work. That, you gotta so, so that just means Jan's going to be eating in front of me. I don't That's not exactly what I, I know. Want. That's not a <laughs> Switzerland eating a Swiss chocolate and whatever ice cream. Hey, my advice to anybody with an interest in jobs be done, uh, Google the name Lance Bencourt, find anything he's written, start reading. Absolutely read the Customer Center Innovation Map. Read his book, Service Service Innovation. And that concludes today's Product Quest podcast. Please send any comments or questions for future shows to productquestpodcast at gmail.com. And thank you so much. Man, that was awesome, dude. I told you guys. Oh, man. Thank awesome. you so much. Yeah, that was... You only asked a sliver of what to talk about, but it was so good. It was so good. Yeah.